know our healthcare system has disparities in how adults from minority backgrounds are treated, but the gap between how children of color and white children are treated is perhaps an unknown, enormous tragedy. Our guest is a top expert in the problem. I think patients, you know, patients and families that understand or hear about this work, knowing this, right, can help to advocate more effectively for their children, for their sibling, for their nephew, you know, for their grandkid, and understanding like these disparities exist, whether, you know, people are intentional about it or not, that if you, if your child has a disability, then maybe that's some point that we need to fight for. Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris is a pediatrician and a researcher at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University and a leader in the American Academy of Pediatrics in addressing childhood inequities. How do we think about disparities in a way that we can work with our policymakers and our legislators to help make sure that care is more equitable um, because we know that policy actually does change things and save lives if you think about um, even just, you know, the integration of hospitals. Hospitals didn't just integrate because they wanted to. It's because there was legislative action and legislative change that said, well, we're going to stop reimbursing you unless you um, integrate your floors. And, and hospitals did it overnight. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted that you chose to take on this topic and excited to connect with your listeners. Well, it was your Lancet uh, Child and Adolescent Health piece that was just published, uh, your research review. You and your co-authors examined dozens of studies from 2017 to 2022. I wonder if we could start, though, by asking you what motivated you to undertake this review. No, Mark, that's a really good question because I don't think a few years ago we would have decided to take this on had we not been asked. Um, the Lancet emailed me one day and said, hey, can we jump on a call? Um, we had this conversation and said, you know, we know that disparities exist for this group and that group and this subspecialty and that subspecialty, but has there ever been on an article that have, has put it all together so we can see the whole landscape of pediatrics. Like everybody is in their little silos and have their little niches, but what about the whole field? What can we say at large? And I said, no, I've never seen that. I've never seen a full like comprehensive mm -hmm. view of pediatrics as we know it. And so really it's because they asked and said, we, we need somebody to do this. Can you do this? And it felt like a massive undertaking at the time. Um, but I'm really happy we were able to pull together almost a one-stop shop of what it looks like, what the field of pediatric looks like, and how does it impact the health and well-being of kids when disparities exist. Well, there are so many important findings. And we, of course, would like to ask you about each of them. I don't know if we'll have time for each of them, but, but <laughs> let, let, let's try. Uh, first, the strongest disparities between uh, white children and children of color involve pain management, which I think is particularly heartbreaking when we think about children, finding that uh, children of color were less likely than their white peers to get painkillers for a broken arm or a broken leg for appendicitis. Uh, for migraines. And of course, we, we, we ask, is there some worry here that children from diverse backgrounds are more likely to get addicted to painkillers, that pain tolerance is different? What's going on there? 
It, that is a question that we continue to, to struggle with. And I think some of this is rooted in hundreds of centuries of racialized thinking and racialized medicine back in the days. And actually it wasn't that long ago, but when med students still believed and were taught that black, um, black children, black adults have thicker skin, so they don't feel pain in the same way, or um, they have stronger lungs and so they can handle more you know, infections and harder work. Um, this, these are ideologies that were held mm-hmm. In, in times of enslavement, right? To justify how um, black people, especially children were treated. If they're not, if you believe they're not feeling as much pain, you can inflict more pain, more work, more burden. And those ideologies, those thoughts, those ideas continue to get passed on into medicine. So much so that you can look at studies for, from maybe even just 10 years ago where medical students said, yes, I think there's something different about black skin versus white skin. So you don't need as much pain medicine. You don't need as much attention to um, pain because the, the pain is not there. Or we don't believe that people are in such pain. When we think about um, uh, children that really deal with pain crises, so sickle cell, mm-hmm. and cell, how, yeah, how those children and, and also those adults are seen as we were, you know, we called them drug seekers, right? Like they're not really in that much pain. They're just looking for drugs. They're just looking for pain medicine when really they don't need it. And, it, and it's that sort of teaching from medical students. And then they grow up to be, you know, attendings and residents and trainees, and that keeps it going. And so that's really our thought. They studied it and parse out like, why these disparities exist Mm -hmm. within pain, but just Mm -hmm. that they exist. But we do Mm -hmm. know from years and decades of of the studies about the the beliefs that physicians hold specifically. But with that being said, it's it's unacceptable. You know, if a kid breaks their arm, if they have appendicitis, if they're having migraines, and in some cases, what we studied was um, having a digit replaced, so having a finger or toe replaced, Hmm. you can imagine, incredibly painful. So they need adequate pain medicine, no matter what race or ethnicity they are. Uh, Absolutely, and you you found that children of color face longer wait times uh, for care at the emergency room. Maybe a couple of questions. How much longer of a wait time are we talking about? And I'm wondering, do you uh, know if this is unconscious bias at play? These are all, I mean, you guys are asking the questions that we need. The next study is the next steps to try to figure out what is happening here. Just in my other work, I know that there are extensive structural barriers to care for many marginalized groups and many racialized groups, um, meaning you know they might have to access care that's further away. They don't have as many physicians. Um, their insurance isn't taken everywhere at every different healthcare facility. Um, and so that could be leading to overcrowding and longer wait times or delays in care. You don't go, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. Like, I don't wanna wait four hours, five hours in the emergency room, or you have waited for four or five hours in the emergency room, and you've got your second shift job. You can't, you can't continue to wait. So we've also found that um, racial and ethnic minority uh, families are more likely to leave without being seen at all in the emergency room. So they did seek care, they tried, and then for whatever reason had to leave. But to your question and to your point, we need to do more work to try to figure out what what is that? What what are the reasons for that? Is it you know accessibility to care? There's literally not enough places where they can get care, or there's not enough places that will accept insurance, or there's not enough providers. Like what what is the issue mm-hmm. here, and how do we rectify it? And again, 
some of the stuff I think is ideology and implicit bias and beliefs. If you feel like someone is coming in and you're triaging, you know, who gets to be seen first versus who is seen last, if they're in pain, and again, you have these beliefs that the pain isn't that bad, they're acting, maybe you're going to bump them lower on the priority list. But all of this stuff we need to continue the to test and do more research and do more studies and really understand why and create mm-hmm. solutions for these problems. Well, Dr. Hergaris, you're, you're systematically going through and, and removing the things that I might start guessing at as whether it's <laughs> is responsible here. Um, but one of the one of the ones that really uh, jumped out at us uh, was that providers were less likely to order diagnostic imaging uh, for children. Uh, and, and that not being tied to insurance just seemed to be less likely to order diagnostic imaging. That, that seems like one that would be separate from a lot of other potential issues, pain tolerance and, and the like. Uh, any insights into that one on your part? Yeah, so what's interesting about um, imaging and treatment in general, so um, and we didn't say this earlier, so I'm, glad, I'm really glad you brought this up about insurance, because a lot of the studies before, it's difficult, you know, if a, a patient doesn't have insurance, you can definitely explain disparities in care because they don't have insurance, which is the kind of the first step in healthcare mm-hmm. in this country. And so one of the reasons why we made sure all of the, the children here, all of the children in these studies had insurance is because we wanted to take that piece away and said, okay, everybody has insurance. We're not saying they all have the same insurance. So we know there's differences, right? If you have a top tier Cadillac private insurance, right? Versus you have public insurance that doesn't cover much and you're not allowed to see many providers, there obviously are inherent differences in there, but at least we can take away the insurance piece and just leave it there. But what was really interesting about the study and it like helped me to even think about how racism, how racialized medicine, how all these things impact everyone, not just racial and ethnic minorities, is because we white children were being overtreated. And so, for example, if you're coming in for a cough or a viral illness and you're a white child, you're more likely to get imaging, you're more likely to get x-rays and you're more likely to get Um, treatments that are not evidence-based, right? Versus if you're a black child, you may be less likely to get those things. And there's been a big push um, against giving treatment and providing more medical um, intervention when it's not needed, especially from a radiological standpoint. We don't want to expose children to um, x-rays if we don't need to, right? We don't want to increase their risk even if it's small. The more x-rays that they get, it's a higher risk for cancer. And so it this this problem, these disparities, this difference in treatment actually impacts white children too. And it's a problem and that they're getting more imaging. They're getting more things that they don't need, probably again, based on how they look. And the other children are not getting that same level of care or um, um, care that is unnecessary. And so, yeah, I I am, am hoping that people, when they read this this work, they take that away there too, that it's not just Black, Latinx, Hispanic, Asian, American, Indian children affected. It's really all children. It's all children. And we should be demanding that all children get the care that they need and the care that they deserve. Well, well, that's true. All children should be treated equally. But I think our listeners are going to find these next findings really heartbreaking. Uh, Black and Hispanic and Asian American children who receive palliative care are more likely to die in the hospital compared to white children. And Hispanic children also are more likely to receive medically intense care during their last days of life. I'm wondering, as you sort of 
people hear this, what kind of reaction have you received from the medical community? Yeah, um, I'm, I, you know, feel like this one, because it's one of our last findings, it's not one people have picked up as much, but I think it's actually one of the most important ones. Um, and so I'm, I'm delighted that I just, I love this, this program because we're del- we're delving into these more nuanced um, sort of problems. The reason why I think the most important ones is that palliative care, you know, a lot of these children, there's no more treatment um, either that they want or that they can get. And so really um, the the premise of palliative care is to provide the best wishes for the child and their family. And for most people, that's not to die in a hospital. And that's mm-hmm. not everybody, but it's a large majority of people don't want to be at home with their family. They want to spend their last hours, their last days, their last weeks, their last months in the settings that are familiar, not a, you know, a heart rate monitor going off constantly, not people coming in and out of their room, measuring their temperature. They want to be at home. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that is extremely heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that that this is true as well for adults, that um, older, older adults that are black um, and Hispanic are more likely to not have those wishes of dying at home um, met. And again, I think we need more research to figure out why that is, I would say one of the reasons that we found in the study is that they're less likely to get consultants from a palliative care team. That means an expert that has experience with dying, terminal illness, palliative care, people are less likely to think like, let me consult the palliative care experts for this family. Um, and so as a result, maybe more, maybe less likely to get that, have the, their wishes met. Because as you might imagine, you know, providers, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists are there doing their job, right? Their job is to keep that patient alive by any means necessary. And then the palliative care professionals come in and say, okay, yeah, we know that's what you want, right? But what does this family want? What does mm-hmm. this kid want? How do they want to spend out their life, right? And it may not be in the hospital hearing beeping going off every five seconds, unable to sleep, unable to have, you know, all the visitors and all the people around them. Um, and so I'm really happy you brought this up because from cradle really to grave, we're seeing disparities throughout pediatrics and the littlest ones and the ones that are um, at the end of their lives. It just is really heartbreaking. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've talked about from, uh, Cradle to grave. Let's talk about from sea to shining sea. Okay. I, th- I, th- I think your uh, your study was national in its focus. Am, am I correct on that? You are uh, absolutely correct. And and that would of course lead to the question: any differences? Urban, rural, northern, southern, densely populated frontier. Did you see any anything that you thought? Aha! This is this is a piece we can dig further and see why the differences. Anything like that emerge for you? Yeah, I think those are next step studies, Margaret. I think we really need to think about the way our country is sliced and divided and how people live and where people live, um, delving a little bit deeper beyond insurance, right? Thinking right. about geography, I think is incredibly important. A lot of uh, racial ethnic minorities actually live in rural areas. And we know that um, there's not a hospital, there's not an urgent care or a clinic every block in a lot of those rural communities. Like a lot of communities are really struggling when it comes to access to healthcare. So I think those are the next sort of studies. This study, this big study really focused on 
racial and ethnic minority children because of what we know about structural racism. But additionally, there are multiple intersections. So being a racial and ethnic minority that lives in a you know, like a rural area versus where I am in Chicago, it, it, the, the issues are different. They're not always the same. Being a racial and ethnic minority that has great insurance and has, um, you know, lots of resources still experiences significant structural racism but again might be the disparities might be different um mm -hmm. and what we where we see the problems might be different mm -hmm. um and so i think uh as we understand more and more about pediatrics and as we understand implicit bias structural racism and how these factors work together i think those are natural progressions and thinking about geography and thinking about gender right how are how are girls treated boys you know the whole spectrum of gender and what that means, how to, you know, if you are a sexual and gender minority. Um, so all of these different intersections are important. And if we don't start looking and asking the question, we'll never find the answers. Yeah. And more importantly, we'll never fix it. Um, most people, again, go into healthcare because they really do want to help people. Um, and so if we don't know how to help and where parts are broken, it's going to be hard to really fix it. You know, I want to pick up on that thought about how we fix it. And, you know, we've been following other research that has shown that children who are black, Asian, spoke our primary language other than English and had no health insurance were less likely to be diagnosed with developmental delays despite accounting for cognitive ability. And black and Hispanic children were less likely to receive services. Uh, you know, all of this is is just tragic news. And, and I think you have been really sounding the alarm I'd like to ask you how we fix this. I know there needs to do more studies, but you know what are what are some initial observations that you have of steps that we can take to improve this? And then obviously we want to see the research about what's effective. Uh, and uh, so, what what are your initial thoughts as you think about strategies for uh, to fix all of these disparities? Yeah, Mark, these um, disparities didn't come in overnight. And so I think, you know, again, a, a lot of us in healthcare are doers and want it to be fixed like tomorrow. <laughs> um, and I do think for us, there are multiple levels, multiple tiers, multiple points of intervention. Um, and so while most healthcare people, researchers, academics, um, people who like to read uh, healthcare journals will read this, I really think about all of the solutions being at different sort of nodes of intersection. So for example, I think patients, you know, patients and families that understand or hear about this work, knowing this, right, can help to advocate more effectively for their children, for their sibling, for their nephew, you know, for their grandkid, and understanding like these disparities exist, whether, you know, people are intentional about it or not, that if you, if your child has a disability, then maybe that's, some point that we need to fight for, like we need to push a little bit harder, like, okay, they're not talking and they're three years old, they're not walking and they're fine. You know, like we need to do more than just talking about it. Like we need services and, and escalating um, if you're not being heard. So I do want patients to feel some empowerment. I don't think all of the ownership belongs on them, but there's some empowerment in having this information that, oh, maybe I'm not gonna get the services right away if I don't ask, right? 
and push, mm-hmm. you know, my my uh, healthcare provider on it. So I think there are some things phys- uh, patients can do, but certainly physicians, like understanding that these dynamics are happening and making sure in some ways you can protocolize things like for all patients that you see that are delayed, there, there are checks, like you're going to send them to a developmental specialist or they're going to receive occupational therapy or speech therapy, whatever it calls for, like trying to be as systematic as you can, not just only, okay, this patient, I think they need this, or maybe they don't need that. And working with the parents as partners to help uh, make those decisions. And then finally, like from institution, institutional level, I think they can help providers. I think they can help healthcare providers to do this in a more systematic way, pulling their data and sharing that back to them. I think, again, you don't know what, you know, you don't know what needs to be fixed if you don't look. Um, And so asking, you know, the um, institutions to look at their data, how many patients have you referred that had the exact same diagnosis, the exact same developmental delays, the exact same, you know, um, treatment uh, had the exact same diagnosis, but different, totally different treatment plans. And, you know, medicine is personal. And so not everyone's going to have exactly the same thing, but, you know, if you're seeing a lot of differences in how you're treating one group versus another group, it begs the question why um, and having discussions with providers as groups, as individuals, as practices on how we want to take care of kids in an equitable way. So I think there's multiple um, kind of nodes of intervention. And then finally, I guess I didn't mention like society. There's a lot of patient advocacy groups, especially for kids that have developmental disabilities and rally, rallying around those groups and getting support and providing them with this, you know, this yeah. Lancet article so that they're able to know like these things exist and how can we put research money behind it? How can we put patient advocacy um, knowledge or training or anything behind it so that um, we can narrow these gaps? Well, I know that you're calling for policy changes, including that senior managers of healthcare systems and providers have to take steps to eliminate race-based pediatric care. We are focused as a uh, as an organization on the primary care system. much of your work is focused on the hospital system. But I think the the issues are somewhat the same, and I'm struck as I as I uh, hear your thoughts on this that we tend to focus on the differences between people and then the outcomes, but not so much the processes that got to the outcomes. And we chalk it up to disparities, but we don't consider that it might have been our disparities that were delivered unto the patient. So I think you've you're just doing such an incredible service here, but I'd like to ask you, do you see any uh, a call already based on your research for any particular policy changes at the state level or even you know those who regulate all of us through the Joint Commission or through CMS? Do you, do you have a sense yet of what some of the policy changes you might call for based on the research would be? Yeah, I think some of this work is going to need to happen at the institutional level. Um, I absolutely believe in policy and making um, legislative changes so that health and progress happens at a society or a population level. Like I think that absolutely needs to happen. Some of the problems though, before we get to the legislative changes are 
for example, just even um, how people's race, ethnicity, language are documented Mm -hmm. within the electronic health records, right? So like, if you are trying to make legislative changes and you are trying to recommend certain things, if we're not even able to trust, you know, what these electronic health records have in them, um, it's difficult to do that. So I do think the first step is making sure that people are able to self-identify. So for example, and I see this, um, I've heard this a lot anecdotally with biracial children, right? Depending on what parent brings them in, if somebody is um, looking at them, they mark down their race. So let's say it's a, um, a biracial child whose mom is white and dad is black, let's say. And so the mom brings them in, they're like, okay, they're white. <laughs> and then the dad brings them in, their race changes for the same visit of the same, for a different visit of the same kid, they're black. And so then how do you analyze that, right? If we can't even really trust what race and what ethnicity that we are marking on uh, the electronic health record, I'm happy to say I, I do know of from a, children's hospital standpoint, I'm not sure what's happening in the adult hospitals, there is a conscientious push to change this, mm-hmm. um, to ask people to self-identify, um, self-disclose if they would like to, how they identify from a race, ethnicity, and even language preference, right? Like if a family says that um, they prefer, you know, they want to speak Spanish and it's on their chart English, they're not going to have the interpreter services. They're not going to have the things that they need at the ready for them and for their visit. So you will continue to see disparities if everybody thinks they speak English and they understand it well enough, right? Um, And so I think that needs to happen as a kind of a first step. But you're right, as a larger population level, how do we think about disparities in a way that we can work with our policymakers and our legislators to help make sure that care is more equitable um, because we know that policy actually does change things and save lives. If you think about um, even just, you know, the integration of hospitals, hospitals didn't just integrate because they wanted to. It's because there was legislative action and legislative change that said, well, we're going to stop reimbursing you unless you um, integrate your floors. And, and hospitals did it overnight. So we do know that policy has such power to help to mitigate some of these disparities. And I want to um, invite policymakers to partner with researchers and partner with physicians to help do it in ways that are thoughtful because physicians are on the front lines and it is difficult to practice medicine today. Um, And so people feel very strongly about, you know, legislators coming in and telling them how to practice medicine. But I do think working with them on thoughtful policy changes that will help to make the society healthier as a whole make a lot of sense. Uh, Doctor, I wonder, you know, policy doesn't come about without people. And I wonder if you could just share with our audience a little bit about your background, what you're working on now, and maybe uh, what's the next research project underway as you think about this opportunity. But I, I know people would be interested to know about the, the person as well. Wow, I'm on the spot. <laughs> um, I, you know, I will just say quickly, because I think this is important to understand about what I do and what I'm interested in, is that um, when I grew up, my growing up, my mom and dad were divorced. And so they, I lived in two separate neighborhoods and the neighborhoods were very different, right? And so one was much more well off and the other one was not, it was lower resourced. And so I felt like I was straddling both of these different worlds. So I got to see my friends who were in the well-off community and talk about high school and college and like their future and their plans. And my other friends, we didn't have those same conversations. And literally the neighborhoods were touching. 
but they couldn't be more different. And so I think I got this like front row view of how like just circumstance um, really sh can shape your your trajectory in life, your trajectory in health, your opportunities. And so that's always um, that's always really stuck with me. So as a researcher, even as a physician, I've always been really interested in how do we like level that playing field, right? Like I was lucky, just happened to be lucky and born to this family, right? That lives in this neighborhood, goes to this school, but how can we actually make opportunities more equitable mm -hmm. so that, cause we know talent is equitably distributed within our society, but not everybody gets access to go to great schools and have great physicians and go on to do the things that they're meant to do. So a lot of my work, thinks about how do we make society more equitable? How do we give um, opportunities and how do we make sure that things exist that children can really thrive? So a lot of my work is about that and systems around that. So um, things that we're working on now, so many things. With respect to um, healthcare disparities, I think our next step is doing some of the things that Margaret was suggesting, like, okay, well, if we parse this down even more, right, from geography or from a gender standpoint, are we seeing even more differences? Are we seeing even more disparities? Are there ways in which that we can examine how to fix the systems? Because I really believe it's a systems issue. How to fix these systems that allow disparities to continue or even exacerbate them. So that's one thing. And then the other things that I've, I work on are incarceration and how the incarceration of a parent or major caregiver impacts the health of children for similar reasons. You know, racism, structural racism, um, black children, rural children, um, children that are impoverished or grow up in families with lower resources are disproportionately impacted. So, again, how do we make sure even though those children have had families that are parents that have gone to jail or prison, how do we make sure that their lives are not impacted in the same way? We need to work on incarceration in and of itself. And that's a policy issue. That's things that we can work on. And from a health issue, how do we make sure that children because their mom went to prison or their, their dad went to jail are not um, relegated, right, to a certain path just because how they were born. It, it's, it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. It's unjust. And then the last thing is how do we empower parents? How do we empower patients and families and communities to not only like sit back and wait for change to happen? Because again, we want this change to happen. Like as physicians who are in the systems, as policymakers, we all want the changes to happen, but it can be slow. Um, and so some of the work we are working on in my lab is how do we empower youth to say, we see these as problems. How can we directly write letters to our policymakers? How can we directly call out issues where we see them? So we just finished a study where there was an intervention we created about activism. And they worked on the teams that were in our study, worked on the school to prison pipeline and why there are more police in their schools than counselors when there's a mental health crisis and there's been a mental health crisis. So I'm veering a little off from um, this bigger issue, but that's kind of the global work of uh, what we're doing, trying to make um, health more equitable within our seas to shining sea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. Nia Heard-Garris, we could keep you uh, here for a long time, but I think we'll try and bring you back again uh, for lots more discussion. We want to thank you for this important work and for joining us to explain it. And we want to thank our audience for joining us being here today. Be sure to subscribe to our videos on YouTube. Find us on Facebook and X with our account name, CHC Radio. As always, you can go online to chcradio.com, sign up for email updates, and please share your thoughts and comments 
about this program and this important conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I would yeah. love to come back. This was the most thoughtful conversation I have had on this issue. Thank you That's so great. much for even bringing this to your viewers. And I'm happy to engage further. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you, you for so shining much. a light on Goodbye. this. So important. Thank you. Thank you. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.